New Life East, good to be with you this morning. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn in them to the book of Exodus chapter 3. I'm excited to be back with you this morning. How many of you enjoyed Pastor Brett Davis last week? I just want Brett to be able to overhear this applause in some way. Man, that is a man in whom the Word of God dwells, and I was so excited that he got to minister to you, and I was so bummed that I was not here to hear him. But uh, I, watched the, I watched the sermon video from it, and it just looked fantastic. And then he preached Friday night. And it's just such a joy to be in a community we, where we have many wonderful teachers. I was preaching at New Life North. It was great last week, but I was missing you. I was missing the space that we've carved out together here and what we're experiencing. So it's good to be back. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. And Exodus 3 is the third chapter in that book. We're failing everywhere with the humor this morning. Let's pause for a word of prayer. How much fun is it, Lord, to be able to be with you and to be in your family and to be in your house? We're so grateful. We're so grateful. Jesus, you were, um, above all things, you were a man of joy. You were the man of joy. The scripture says that You were anointed with the oil of joy above your companions. That means that nobody on planet earth was ever happier than you. And in spite of it all, too, he saw the darkness of the world. He saw the breakdown of the world. He saw the great calamity that was coming on the cross. And yet for the joy set before you, you endured it. Nobody was happier than you. Nobody was more full of life than you. And when we come into contact with you, we know that we are coming into contact with the throbbing heart of joy at the center of all things. So we ask this morning that as we open the scriptures, we ask that we would see your face. We ask that we would feel your heart. We ask that we would know your invitation to make a home inside of joy. Grant that, we're praying. We ask that the scriptures would speak to us, that you would pick them up, that you would make them your voice, because indeed they are your voice. Jesus, word of God, speak in these words of God. And we ask that you would find us right where we are, that the word of God would kill us and make us alive again, (laughs) that we'd be born again into the new creation, born into the kingdom. Do what we're asking. We say, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and I will see this strange sight. Why why does the bush burn but not burn up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any, any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place Where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am, what's the word? I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That took a lot of practice this week. (laughs) And now the cry of the Israelites, it's reached me, and I've seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, we know the backstory here. God, as an act of deliverance during a time of famine, led his people, Jacob's sons and their families, down into Egypt. And for a time, the patriarch Jacob and his family found Egypt to be a very hospitable place for them to live. Pharaoh had carved out space for them there. And they could raise their flocks, and they could raise their herds and their livestock, and they could grow what they needed for food. God had carved out this beautiful space for them in Egypt. But over time, their experience in Egypt began to darken. And the Pharaohs started using them and abusing them. And by the time we get to the beginning of the book of Exodus... The people of God, their life has become bitter with hardship and slavery and difficult labor. And every time they go to Pharaoh asking for help, Pharaoh tightens the screws on them. More bricks, more bricks, more bricks. And so the people of God who were led into a place of flourishing, that place of flourishing all of a sudden is a place of great diminishment. And yet God's blessing remains on his people And they're strengthened even inside their slavery. And so Pharaoh continues to tighten the screws. And at one point, he decrees that all of the firstborn men, all of the little male babies in the house, two years old and younger, that they need to be killed. And one of the Hebrew mamas goes, they're not going to kill my baby. And so she takes her baby and she puts him in a little wicker basket and tucks him in and hides him on the Nile River. And that baby's name is, do you know it? It's Moses. That's right. God draws Moses out of the waters in order that God might draw his people through Moses out of the waters of suffering. And Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household as one of his own. And one day Moses sees one of his own people, the Hebrews, being mistreated. And so he rises to the occasion. Moses decides to go over and try to deliver one of his people. And so he murders an Egyptian. And the next day, He sees two of his own people, two Hebrews fighting, and he goes to try to settle the dispute. And they say to him, hey, what are you going to do? Who made you ruler over us? Are you going to try? Are you going to kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses freaks out, leaves, heads to the backside of the wilderness. And for 40 years or so, Moses toiled away in obscurity. His people are suffering in Egypt, and Moses feels banished from all of that. And then he has this moment where he goes up onto Horeb, the mountain of God. He's tending the flocks and the herds, and he sees this strange sight, a bush that on the one hand is burning, and yet it does not burn up. It's full of glory, it's consumed with glory, and yet it's not devoured. And so as he approaches the strange sight, this bush that's burning but does not burn up, he hears the voice of God 
speak to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And as Moses approaches, the Lord says to him, take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy ground. And so Moses begins to be undone by the presence of God. And then straight from the heart of the voice of God, straight from the heart of this burning bush experience, Moses hears the voice of God say to him, hey, do you remember those people that are in slavery in Egypt? Your people, Moses, your own flesh and blood, your brothers and sisters, your aunties and your uncles, your cousins, your people. Well, I want you to know, Moses, that their cry because of their slavery has reached me. And I'm concerned about them. I'm brokenhearted for them. I love them. I care for them. And I'm not just going to stay up here in the clouds, but I have come down to help them. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know it, know it now. Our God is a God who is concerned. Our God is a God who cares. Our God is a God who loves. Our God is a God whose heart breaks for humanity. There is nothing aloof. There is nothing disinterested. There is nothing distant or remote about our God. So he tells Moses, I'm concerned about them. But then this, the critical verse, verse 8, verse 10 rather. So now go. I'm sending you. I'm sending you. See, I want to say to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that it is the personal encounter with the Lord that throws us into the mission of God. Moses had tried to do it on his own. Moses had tried to rescue the people on his own, but he comes into this personal encounter with the Lord and that personal encounter takes him and picks him up and it throws him into the costly mission of following God. It's the personal encounter with the Lord that throws us into mission. Brothers and sisters, the personal encounter with the Lord does this to us. All throughout the scriptures, it does it to the people of God. Genesis chapter 12 The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. The encounter that Abram has with God throws him into the purposes of God, brothers and sisters. Hey, Abram, I know that it's comfortable here. I know that you have everything that you need, safety and security, your father's people, your mother's household. You're surrounded by all of the good things, all kind of safety. But Abram, I have a mission. Abram, I'm trying to save the world. Okay, God, and I want to do it through you. And so what God does is God puts his blessing on Abram and sends Abram out. And Abram, as the carrier of the blessing, is called to bring God's life to the world. The encounter encounter with God for Abram throws him into mission. Think about the great prophet of Israel, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And above him were seraphim with six wings. With two they covered their faces. And with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. It's this encounter with God. Woe to me, Isaiah cries. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. God cleans up Isaiah in order to do something with him. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. The encounter, the personal encounter with the Lord, never in the scriptural imagination remains just a personal encounter with the Lord. But the personal encounter with the Lord always tangles us up in whatever it is God is doing, brothers and sisters, and God is doing much. God is healing blind eyes. God is opening deaf ears. God is loosing deaf tongues. God is challenging systems and power structures that are bent towards the destruction of human life. God's doing that. God is speaking to the dead and waking them up. God is healing the brokenhearted and binding up their wounds. God is doing much. And when we have an encounter with God, it always catches us up inside the vortex of whatever it is God is doing. Think about in the Gospels, the encounter with Jesus. When those first men and women began to encounter the Lord in the Gospels, it never remains just an encounter with the magnetic and beautiful figure of Jesus. But when Jesus begins to reveal himself on the shores of Galilee in the first, the Sea of Galilee in the first century. He doesn't just say, hey guys, here's something beautiful, look at me. But what does he do? He says to them, follow me. Follow me. The personal encounter with the Lord throws us into mission. But I'll reverse that statement or clarify it just a little bit more. I want to say that the personal encounter with the Lord always throws us into mission. It's not just that it does, but that it always throws us into mission. And in the biblical imagination, there is no experience, there is no authentic experience of God that doesn't drag us, sometimes even kicking and screaming into whatever it is God is doing. Our lives are not our own. (laughs) We're bought with a price. And when we encounter this God, He dignifies our lives with a glory they never would have had otherwise. And that glory comes because we yield ourselves to the God who revealed himself to Abraham and to Moses and to Isaiah and to Peter and Andrew, James and John in the first century. We're giving ourselves over to him. And what he does is he tangles us up in the vortex of his goodness. And I know that in our time and in our culture, the way that so many people think about their spirituality is they think about it as something that's just sort of personally beneficial to them. (laughs) They think about it like they think about their own hygiene. 
And I brush my teeth in the morning and I comb my hair and I try to shower once a day, you know, if I can. And I wash my clothes and I exercise. The doc tells me it's a good thing for me, an apple a day. Keeps the doctor away. And of course, I need to cultivate spirituality, right? Spirituality. I want some transcendent experiences. I want experiences that bring me to a place of peace and repose equanimity. That's the spirituality of pagans, brothers and sisters. It's just part of the ecosystem of a life that is already put together and it's got everything fine about it. And it never makes the outward turn. See, that's the problem with it, is that it never makes the outward turn. We are not of that kind and sort of spirituality, not in the church. And of course we do. We cultivate places of peace and repose. The God that we worship is the God who spoke on the lips of David and said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in. He leads me beside. He restores my soul. But then he also guides me in paths of righteousness, what? For the sake of his name. And even though I walk through the valley of the, wait, what? The shadow of death. I will fear no evil for... For you are with me, your rod and your... How did we wind up in the valley of the shadow of death, brothers and sisters? We started out in the green pastures, in the quiet waters, and God was restoring our soul. And we were on a solitude retreat up in the mountains or to some retreat center or some monastery somewhere up in the mountains. And it was all just nice. How did we wind up in the valley of the shadow of death? I'll tell you how. We wound up there because we followed the Lord who guides us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And when he leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name, that means that our lives will constantly be butting up against the unrighteousness of this world. And we'll come face to face with the conflict and the struggle. Moses does not just get to have an experience of the burning bush that leaves him with a sense of transcendent wonder and awe. And then he decides to go write books and lead conferences and retreats on how to have nice experiences of God. But the burning bush hollers at him and tells him that there are people to be rescued. There's a mission to be undertaken, Moses. There are people whose lives are being ground to a powder, Moses. So I want you to throw yourself right between those who are being ground to the dust and the ones who are grinding them to dust. Moses, that's where you're called. That's where you're called. You're called to the frontier. You're called to the border. You're called to the edges. You're called to the place where human life is being annihilated and frustrated and degraded. You're called into that place, brothers and sisters. Christian spirituality does not remain in a little cloister. It does not remain in a little silo. It cannot stay there. But when we follow the God who is made known in Jesus, it always yanks us out into the deeps. The great G.K. Chesterton, one of the great writers of the 20th century, in a wonderful book entitled Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton started out as an atheist. And he said he set about to disprove the Christian faith 
I went out, he said, to invent a heresy of my own. And when I had put the finishing touches on it, he said, I discovered that it was in fact orthodoxy. God was waiting for me all along. He tried to deny God as far as he could. And he found out that the God that he was denying was just an idol and that the actual God was the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And he was comparing Eastern spirituality to Christianity at one point. And he says, you know, the chief difference between them can be seen in their art. He says, when you look at the art of Eastern spirituality, you have the Eastern monk sitting cross-legged, eyes closed, inward, perfectly tranquil, happy, content. He said, but when you start to look at the art that Christians have produced down through the centuries, what you notice is that the difference between the Christian missionary and the Eastern monk is that the Christian missionary, the Christian saint, the Christian monk even, might be, whereas the Eastern monk is reposed and happy, he says, the Christian is wasted to his crazy bones, but his eyes are frightfully alive. (laughs) Guys. To follow the God made known in Jesus is to have our eyes and our heart awakened to the world around us that we don't get to shut our eyes, that we don't get to close our ears, that we don't get to retreat into our own private corner. But when we come to this God, we come to a God who is crazy passionate about the world that he has made. And he is determined to penetrate the heart of darkness and to break its power. In fact, he has done so in the person of Jesus. Look back at Exodus chapter 3. Moses has his encounter with God. And the Lord says to him in verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned. So I have come down to bring them up. The cry of the Israelites, verse 9, has reached me. So now go, I am sending you. The critical transformation in our spirituality occurs when we allow God's concern for the world, God's concern for people to also become our concern. That's the critical transformation. And too many of us, we've treated our spirituality, we've treated our Christianity as a thing that just kind of wakes us up to the ineffable, to the transcendent. I've had an experience of God. Everything is wonderful now. And we've got the God piece of our lives settled. And now we can just go on and live happily ever after. Let me break the illusion for you. That's not what you've signed up for. What you and I have signed up for is the mission that calls us into a yet not I, but Christ in me. The Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live anymore, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, he says, I live by the faith. The faith or the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that when you come into an experience of Christ Jesus, he doesn't just give you a ticket to heaven that you can punch at the pearly gates when you die. When you come into an experience of Christ Jesus, what happens is Jesus himself begins to work his life deep inside of you. That he replaces who you are. That the new motive power of your life is no longer the I. It's no longer Andrew. It's no longer Mary. It's no longer Elizabeth. It's no longer Frank or Bob or Jim or Tim or Tyler or Susan. 
Don't you love Susan Wood? Give it up for Susan Wood over here. But the new motive power of our lives is the resurrected Christ. He saturates our being to the innermost. And what begins to happen to us is that we begin to see like Jesus and hear like Jesus. We begin to feel like Jesus. And then we carry Jesus into the world that Jesus has died for. That's what we've signed up for. Years ago, I was pastoring in Denver. And Mandy and I heard through the grapevine that some of the leaders in our community were preparing to adopt a child, maybe possibly two, from Africa. And we loved these folks and we knew them really well. And we had not heard anything about this from them. So we got some time with them one night, just decided to get a dinner with them to find out what they were doing and what they were planning and thinking and try to find out how we could be a support to them as a community. So we arranged a dinner with them, went over to their house and cooked a meal with them and sat down at the table. And I said to them, guys, tell me about what you're getting ready to do. I haven't heard anything about this. And they said, well, we're getting ready to adopt a special needs child from a country in Africa. I said, man, that's incredible. Has this been something that's been in your heart for like years? Is this a childhood dream that's finally now coming to fruition for you guys? Talk about it. Unpack it for us. And the husband, his name is Cedric. Cedric looks at me. He had a great sense of humor. He looked at me. He goes, oh yeah, it's been on our heart for like weeks. I go, wait, what? Weeks? I mean weeks. He goes, no, literally. It was just a few weeks ago. And then his wife, Stephanie, chimed in. Stephanie said, she said, I don't, this wasn't anything that we were planning for. But she said, I was on my face one morning in my prayer closet, interceding before the Lord. And I don't know how this happened, but I found myself interceding for all of the abused and neglected and forgotten children of our world. She said, and the Lord began to grip my heart, like break my heart for these children. And I'm on my face and I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord and tears are flowing and I'm crying out, God, would you do something? God, would you do something about these children? God, would you do something about these children? She said, I kid you not, Andrew, as as clear as the light of day, I saw the face of God and I heard the voice of God. And I sensed the Lord Jesus say to me, I will do something about it. How about you adopt one of them? She said, and so I thought I was crazy. So I called Cedric and I told Cedric what I experienced in prayer. And he said, no, that's the voice of God. We need to do something about it. And within just a few weeks, all of a sudden, they're in the costly mission of adopting one of these kids. And within two years, they had not adopted one, but they'd adopted two. And within three years, those kids were flourishing. Their lives were saved in a way that you wouldn't believe. Brothers and sisters, it's something like that. That what we do is we put our life and our heart out there for others. That we spend what we have, not for ourselves, but we spend what we have for the sake of others. One of C.S. Lewis's contemporaries and good friends, Charles Williams, called this the doctrine of substituted love. That what we do is we stand in the gap where others are not able to stand for themselves. That we rise up where people cannot rise up for themselves. That we give ourselves to other people so that they may flourish. And when we do that, we're living the deepest mystery of the cosmos. Because the heart of all things is what God has done in taking a body and exhausting himself for us. 
And Moses on the mountain of God saw the bush that burned but didn't burn up. A tree that was consumed with glory and called him into the mission. There was another tree that was consumed with glory and did not burn up. And it is Golgotha. And when we meet Jesus Christ there, what he does is he wraps us up into his life. This is what Paul said, Philippians chapter 3. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of what? That's right. Participation, the fellowship, the koinonia, a friendship with his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I have in my study in the mornings, wake up early, make coffee. I get in my study, I close the door, I open the scriptures and I begin to pray, light a little candle. It's a nice little zone for me. But always right behind that candle, I have this little wooden cross that a friend gave me years ago. And as often as not, what I'll do in the mornings is I'll sit there with the candle lit in the darkness and I'll watch the flames flicker against that wooden cross. And there was a time, I think, in my spirituality when what I looked for in the prayer closet was I looked for shiny experiences of God that would set me apart in some way or that I could go talk about to other people that would make me feel more spiritual or better and all of that stuff. At some point in your life, all of that has to die away. And you have to come to the place where what you're doing, where the center of your spirituality is a gazing upon the cross. And what I'll do in the mornings is I'll watch the flames flicker against the cross and I'll remember that right there, that's the center of all things. The way in which God took a human body and exhausted his life for humanity. And the prayer will be this, Lord Jesus, make me as you are. I'm not looking for a shiny experience of you. I'm not looking for an experience of euphoria in your presence that just makes me feel good so that I can go out all warm and fuzzy and filled. I'm not looking for that. What I'm looking for is the way in which you're calling me to make my life an offering for others. And is insofar as you continue to put breath in my lungs and energy and life in my body, what I will do is I will give myself away for you. And so Moses saw that the bush was burning and didn't burn up. And we see that the cross is aflame with glory and yet it's not consumed. And it is drawing our lives into it. And if we'll allow our lives to be drawn into it, I promise you the world will be saved. But you have to surrender yourself.